Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table, with your hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Derek Weston. Hi, welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. We try not to play favorites here, but today we have one of our favorite guests, Kendall Vanderslice. Kendall is a baker, writer, speaker, and founder of the Edible Theology Project, a ministry that connects the communion table to the kitchen table. She's a graduate of Wheaton College, Boston University, and Duke Divinity School. She lives with her big-eared beagle named Strudel in Durham, North Carolina, where she teaches workshops on baking and spiritual practice. Anne and I got to speak with Kendall about her fantastic new book, Buy Bread Alone, a baker's reflection on hunger, longing, and the goodness of God. Speaking of books, pre-order has begun on my and Anna's book, The Just Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration. You can order it on Bookshop, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your favorite local bookstore. All right, on to our conversation with Kendall. So today we have, um, we have realized, I think that she is our most frequent guest. Um, we were just counting, I think this is the fourth time at least the fourth time here on the Food and Faith podcast. Uh, we have our good friend and colleague, Kendall Vanderslice, is with us. And we'll be talking about her new book, By Bread Alone, a Baker's Reflections on Hunger, Longing, and the Goodness of God, which is such a joy, my friends, just to have hold this Aww. book in on my hands. Thank so, you. Just, thank what, you. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. You know, it just occurred to me, my my very first time on this podcast um, is what actually helped me connect with the person who now wrote the foreword on this book. So I, right. the first time I like sung the praises of Peter Reinhardt and how great I thought he was. And someone overheard it, was working on a project, and they had emailed me several times about this project and I hadn't responded. And finally they said, Peter Reinhardt's doing this project and we want you two to do it together. <laughs> and so that was how he and I met. We became good friends. Now he's written the forward for this book. And so it all comes back to the Food and Faith podcast. Fantastic. Look well, there us. you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, because you have been on this podcast before, we always start off with this question of geography. And I was thinking, since you've told that sto story a number of times, um, I was wondering if you would be interested. You have so many beautiful stories in this book about your particular relationship with bread. And I thought maybe a little twist would be to say, would you like to start off by telling us your geography in relation to bread? What is How has bread formed you over the years and over your life, um, which is, you know, spoiler alert readers, that's why you need to get the book. <laughs> um, but I thought that might be a different way to kind of in invite you into um, introducing you to those listeners who haven't heard our previous podcast without just feeling like you're telling the same story again. <laughs> yeah. So um, for me, I mean, I think bread is everything. <laughs> um, my My entire sort of journey of faith is shaped through my relationship to bread. Um, and so the bread that I make right now most often that I think is shaping me and um, kind of my work is what I call a sourdough on training wheels. Um, it's a long fermentation, very wet, high hydration dough, um, but I make it with commercial yeast. And I think that's sort of the perfect sort of um, summary of like learning to take these slow, long rhythms that that require a lot of rest and also realizing that I don't have to like perfect everything. I don't have to go all in with the sourdough um, in order to have something delicious and beautiful that fits within the rhythms of my life. So I don't know if that quite gets at the question quite right, but that is the sort of the place, if you will, that my bread is, bread is at these days. Mm. 
one of the things that I particularly appreciated about this book was that um, I learned a lot about bread. It's actually <laughs> very educational. It's, it's very educational. Um, but at the same time, I learned a lot about you. And uh, there is there is this kind of intimate relationship between your understanding of yourself as a baker and your understanding of yourself as as a human and as a person of faith. Um, so I I'm really interested in how you came to the idea of weaving those ideas. Like where where what was the genesis of this? Because I think it's it's a really fascinating and well executed concept. Oh, thank you. Well, so I've been thinking about this book really for the last seven years. Um, I seven years ago developed a workshop um, while I was I was working for a church, helping them build a bread bakery to kind of sustain themselves. Um, and while there, I developed this workshop that I now teach called Bake and Pray. But at the time, I just I didn't have a name for it. Um, but it was kind of examining the like spiritual the spiritual parallels woven into the process of baking bread and looking at how to bake bread as a spiritual practice. Um, and so I started thinking at that time, like, I would really like to write a book that digs into this further. And I actually was specifically thinking about, like, how would I dig into the four different elements of bread, flour, water, yeast, and salt? Um, and as I dig further into those, what would it look like to examine kind of the role of these elements in scripture and history, kind of scientifically what they're doing in, in these um in these different in in bread um and so that idea really began seven years ago i actually thought that book was going to come before we will feast um and started working on it and realized i just you know it was less that i didn't feel ready to write that one and more that we will feast just felt like it was the important first one to write um, so then when I went to Duke Divinity, I had this book in mind that whole time. So I was really thinking about how do I dig into theology of bread? How do I write all of my papers kind of toward the idea of a book on theology of bread? Um, and how do I, um, yeah, you know, what, what would that look like? And so at that time, I felt ready to do this once again, but also for some reason, it just wasn't quite there. Um, and in my second to last semester at, at Duke, I took a class, a spiritual autobiography class. Um, and so in that class, I decided for kind of the essay that I would write to shape kind of the class around, um, I was going to work on an essay that was looking at kind of my own relationship to bread um, and my body and kind of my faith. Um, and as I dug into, it was just kind of a series of vignettes looking at kind of these, these particular moments where my relationship to my body, my relationship to bread, and my relationship to church all kind of wove together. Um, and as I worked on that series of vignettes, I realized, oh, my understanding of bread and the theology of bread cannot be separated from my own experience of my relationship to bread, my relationship to food, my relationship to church. Um, and so that was kind of the what sparked this realization of this is a book that's not just about bread and not just about theology, but is about me. Um, and, you know, to, to write this theology, I also have to write memoir. Um, so that was, that was where kind of the idea began. Um, and then kind of over the coming months, as, as We Will Feast released, there was so much, um, so many people resonated with the chapter on loneliness in that book. That was kind of, I wrote it um, knowing that it was true of my own experience, but I was shocked by how many other people also commented on on their resonance with that chapter. Um, so that's kind of where I realized that this is this is a book about my own experience, that my own um, 
anxieties around, um, around loneliness, around my body, around, you know, food is, is, is interwoven with, you know, this idea of unmet longing and that that's actually an experience that is far more universal, um, in the same way that bread is both incredibly particular, but also very universal. I was so uh, excited and surprised that we've spoken about the concept of this book, you know, all over the years. And then, and I think I was picture, I was expecting more of like, this is the theology book and what a beautiful thing that it is. And it's that narrative theology and the way that you weave your own narrative, I think invites the reader into a theological exploration um, that's very personal and very um, grounded in 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 life experience um, and I just I appreciate any any good narrative theology I think that that's there's something that comes alive in a different way um, in that mm. I also appreciated I mean Derek mentioned just how much to learn but also just that that you as a baker bring that scientific exploration like combining what's happening in the the transformation of the yeast and what does the flour do and that bringing the theology into that conversation um really uh, jumps out at me as well um and i wonder for our listeners like is there a little i mean there's so many throughout the book but um could you just give like pick one like little vignette of like how does how does the the physical transformation or the physical baking connect with the spiritual principles. I think that feels like yeah. one of the threads that is um, really powerful throughout this text. One one particular way that I love reflecting on this during Lent. Um, so on Ash Wednesday, you know, we we hear the word spoken over us that it's from dust we come and to dust we will return. Um, and that's drawn from Genesis 3.19 and that the full verse of Genesis 3.19 actually starts with, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread until you return to the ground for dust, from dust you come and to dust you will return. Um, and that is the first mention of bread in scripture. Um, it is also, you know, up until this point, the food that humans have been eating is largely, you know, the, the fruits of the trees. And now bread is something that actually requires transformation, requires work and participation on the part of the humans. And so it is both kind of this, this gift, but it is also um, something that requires sweat an incredible amount of labor to actually be able to make the bread. Um, so I have for the last several years um, spent the season of Lent baking bread with others, mixing up a sourdough starter on Ash Wednesday and reflecting on kind of the relationship between dust and flour. Um, and the um, it's just really beautiful to reflect on our own mortality on Ash Wednesday and then mix up a sourdough starter and over the next few days, watch this thing come back to life. Um, but one of the other things that I really love about sort of looking at the relationship between dust and flour is that when water touches flour, a series of transformations begins that cannot be undone. Um, so that as soon as the water touches the wheat, it begins to activate enzymes within the wheat. And then these two amino acids, glutenin and gliadin, begin to unravel within the wheat and form bonds with one another to create gluten. So once this water touches flour and that gluten formation begins, you can never go back to kind of the flour as it was before. Um, and so I love thinking, you know, on Ash Wednesday, we're reflecting on it's from dust we come and to dust we will return. And Jesus was also incarnate in a human body. You know, we could also say from dust he came, but Jesus does not return to dust. Um, Jesus 
offers himself to us as bread. And so like, we are this dust, but Jesus is the flower that, you know, can't, cannot return, um, but actually goes forward and then becomes bread and offers himself to us as bread um, that we might also become like him. And so that's, you know, just one small, but I think really beautiful and powerful image of, of kind of how the actual um, chemistry of flower itself says something about the nature of God. You're so smart. <laughs> I just oh, really like bread. That's all. <laughs> also, why didn't we record this before? This is Friday of, of Ash Wednesday. Week, so why did we not record this last week? Because that was a good sermon. I would. I want to steal that for next year. <laughs> you can. You can. No shame. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, and, and for our listeners, just like what you just heard, like is throughout the book, like that level of, of both science and theology. And, and there's, there's something beautiful about that, right? When we're in a time where faith and science seem so often to be at odds, you have created this beautiful blend of of science and theology uh, that that is not just academic and heady it it actually because it's embedded in your story actually gives it a lot of heart as well um and part of what i recognized as your kind of learning more about bread you're also kind of going on this journey theologically like from a from a more evangelical place to being more rooted in church tradition and church mm-hmm. calendar and 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 kind of talk a little bit about what it feels like to reflect on having those journeys kind of parallel each other mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. the the deepening of this rich understanding of bread which you clearly have and also this deep understanding of of your faith and where you find yourself in the faith. Yeah. So for me, I think um, the moment that I think really um, for me in this book, this most significant and kind of kind of shaping the trajectory um, is kind of my college years. And that these, these years of my um, sort of deep spiritual anxiety, um, what I would call in some ways, like, you know, a faith crisis or what today might be called sort of deconstruction or um, I, I put it in this section on water really to liken it to that unraveling of the gluten strands um, that in that season, it maps onto kind of the years in which I was not eating bread. Um, and I was told, in fact, that I could not eat bread. Um, and so for me, there was sort of a, a very stark parallel of this like deep literal hunger for bread and yearning for the ability to bake bread that mapped onto this sort of deep spiritual hunger for, um, I think, a fuller, more intimate understanding of who God is and how God is at work in the world. Um, and for me, sort of the, the healing of both of those came in um, participating in a church tradition that offered the Eucharist week after week. And it was kind of the bread itself, that extension of the bread itself, that I think um, not just not just healed me, but kind of pulled me towards um, a more full understanding of both that bread and also of, you know, my, my own faith. Um, And so for me, it was like literally the bread that brought healing um, and specifically that bread being grounded in a tradition that had a fuller understanding of kind of how our bodies are at at work in worship and also how kind of our worship is this historical and global tradition. 
Um, and so I, you know, I write at the beginning of the book that um, I, all of the communities that I write about that have been deeply healing for me have also been harmful for others. And the communities that have been healing for others have been harmful for me. And I think that was especially apparent as I was working on this book um, you know, there there was news that arose around one of the churches that I wrote about in this book in the season of actually writing this book. And it was really hard for me to sort of grapple with, like, how could this place that was so incredible for me be so harmful for others? Um, but then also in the past year, I have um, developed relationships with people for whom, you know, a church community that in this book was so harmful for me was incredibly healing for them. And it's just been so humbling to realize that, you know, I think part of the beauty of this imagery of bread is that we as the church are united united globally and historically and across traditions through the fact that we break the same bread, um, that we are made one. I believe that we are made one in this body and blood of Christ and um, in the bread that we share. And it's really humbling to realize that, you know, there's there's so much to learn from from a variety of traditions. But also, I think that there is so much importance in being a part of a tradition that um, has a deep understanding of its historical nature, has a deep understanding of the ways that our, our bodies are involved in the act of worship and has a deep a deep kind of purpose behind the actual materiality of, of our worship. And so that's why I think for me, you know, these like Anglican and Episcopal rhythms have been so vital to my ability to understand what's at, what's at play here with bread. Well, I just, oh, it's so powerful and the humility of um, how, we're all part of these fallible human organizations that are part of this bigger body of Christ that has redemption and healing and um, the possibility for resurrection in it. And that all of yeah. that is in it together is um, I, I, it's disappointing to me sometimes. Cause I want, I want to find the, can I please be part of the church? <laughs> the right that, thing. <laughs> that, that does the right thing. And that yeah. is only yeah. redemptive and healing and doesn't have the, the human um, harm piece. And obviously, of course, we all need to be part of whatever organizations we're part of and working towards being more just and compassionate and healing places, but that it's it's all mixed up together in it. Mm -hmm. um, it leads me to be curious about, um, you know, I think, it, I don't remember which one, but, you know, we've had the conversation here on the podcast with you before about how, Eucharist can be an invitation or a barrier mm -hmm. um and I was really struck throughout that this book about the wrestling between the individual and the collective and is communion for you know is it an individual spiritual practice is it a collective spiritual practice um, and I was also struck by how baking often it seems I mean you you bring baking into the collective more than most people I know and <laughs> Generally, I think most of us experience baking as a more of an individual practice, whereas the eating is a collective practice. Um, and I'm I'm curious, going back to the um, the theology piece, is could you just explore with us a little bit more about you know we're all part of this one, and we come to the table because we're together as one, and yet so many of our traditions, even within that understanding practice communion as a solitary act mm -hmm. um I mean, obviously this is dinner church and we will feast is one of the kind of responses to this um yeah but i i just would love to hear a little bit more about 
where where's your where's yeah your, yeah where's the energy so, around that tension? for me i really love i think as i dug into this book um one of the beautiful things about realizing that to write about bread i also had to write about my relationship to my body was that it helped me to sort of get the language to realize that I'm writing about bread with a lowercase b as well as my body, my actual physical body, and also how both of those things are related to the bread with a capital B, you know, Jesus, um, and also the body with a capital B, the body of Christ, the church. Um, and, and the fact that those sort of same words are used, bread and body, in both this very individual and also corporate sense, um, I think helped me to sort of um, explore the relationship between them all, that there is both this um, individuality to it, but also a community is made up of individuals. And we are all kind of as individuals shaped by the communities that we are a part of. And so there's kind of a relationship between the two that forms both us as individuals and us as a collective whole in the same way that I think um, our relationship to communion is inherently communal and also individual in that we are kind of individually partaking of this thing, but also this thing that everyone around us is also partaking of and somehow connects us to one another. Um, but one of the things that I also love is thinking about this in terms of kind of the muddled space between the bread with a lowercase b and the bread with a capital B. Um, that there is like the bread that we consume in the Eucharist, you know, that is the body of Christ that does something at a mystical or spiritual level that we can't fully comprehend or understand. Um, and there is good reason to have sort of a, a to think very deeply about what's happening and how do we do this carefully and responsibly. And also, like, God works beyond kind of our ability to, to grapple with how God works um, in the very sort of mundane lowercase b, and that there is something in just the daily bread that we bake and that we share and that we consume that, that teaches us something of God um, in a way that you know, almost like the the bread that we consume on Sunday morning cannot. Um, and so looking at how do we sort of poke at all the different angles into this very mundane thing and this also very sort of miraculous mystical thing and and what can we learn in sort of that space between the two. One of the um the one of the pieces that there's not I don't get into it too deeply in the book, but it is sort of one of the historical bits that's in there. Um, but that for me is kind of the the locus of everything. Um, is this story, this allegorical play that was written by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, a 17th century Mexican nun. Um, and she writes, it's, it's a very short sort of play that she wrote as the introduction to this larger play for the Spanish court. Um, and in it, she she writes of kind of these, um, the Spanish, the conquistadors, and also the missionaries who come to the Americas. Um, and as they arrive in the Americas, they encounter this, indi this, this indigenous couple that is, you know, like following the celebration of what they call the great God of the seeds, this God that makes himself known in the, in the loaf that they share with one another. Um, and when the, the Spanish arrive, you know, the, the indigenous are able to recognize, oh, the, the God that you know in your bread is the same God that we know in our loaf. Um, and for, for, you know, one of the people there was this like, no, that can't possibly be it. And for the other, there was this recognition of, yes, the same God has revealed God's self through our own respective breads. And now we have kind of the united language to understand that we know the same God. Um, and it was definitely meant as like, uh, um, 
it uh, it was not received well, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, but I just think it's this really beautiful image this you know she was she was subverting their expectation of how god works that um that the expectation was like we as the ones who make a wheat bread and have this like have this sort of christian tradition passed down we know in our bread the true god and to suddenly realize like oh god has revealed god's self in bread to people who don't have the same name or language or story that we do but still somehow know god um it's it's a you know a challenge to accept but i think also just incredibly beautiful to realize like i do think that god reveals god's self in these very tactile tangible things when we don't have the words or language um, to know the broader sort of um, like story of that God's work in the world. And, and what a, you know, missed opportunity to not see our common humanity. When we think about the fact that bread basically was invented in the, you know, various parts of the world (laughs) at the same time by different cultures. And it could be such a unifying image if we let it be yeah Um, yeah and i think it it is sort of becomes like the the unity and the diversity of the bread itself and the ways that it's unique to specific locations but also sort of universal like i think it just provides so much of a like powerful image for how we can better understand kind of these complexities of you know the faith as well um but we it it is something that you know we can't systematize. <laughs> it, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't fit within you know systematic theology very very precisely because it's a reminder that it's something outside of us that we can't control. Um, but it is also, I think, such a rich opportunity for for seeing God in a much more you know, expansive and and beautiful way. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the metaphors that appears in the book. Um, and really strongly in the second half of the book is the idea of God giving you cake and not <laughs> bread. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that, about what you mean by that and and ways that's been reflected in your life? Because I thought that that was, I thought that that was incredibly meaningful. Oh, thank you. Good. Because sometimes I was worried it would come across as just cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm, I'm glad it did not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I I feel like I've had many experiences where um, I'm so grateful for the gifts that God has given me. I'm so grateful for these for these like beautiful opportunities and experiences that that I couldn't have imagined or asked for myself, um, and also this deep awareness of those things like happened at the expense of these other things that I deeply desired. Um, And sort of that wrestling with like, I want something that seems so simple. And that seems like, you know, I I haven't asked for this extravagant thing. I've asked for something much simpler. Um, And God has withheld the simpler, but instead given me this extravagant. Um, And it, it, it is hard to know how do you, you know, how can you be grateful for this extravagant thing when also there's that deeper, longing and deeper loneliness that exists within it. Um, and and so that that was kind of for me this likening of of bread and cake that like cake is something wonderful. Um, I love cake. I make cakes as long as as well as bread, but also you can't survive off cake in the way that you can survive off bread. Um, and I think it also 
you know, it's given me a, an appreciation for kind of simplicity um, and this longing for the very kind of very simple things that the extravagant things are a gift and also don't sustain us. Um, and, and how do we, you know, how do we, how do we live with that? But also I think I needed a way to like have permission to lament what I didn't have, even though I had many great things. Um, because it's, it's hard when, you know, when it feels like these like wonderful gifts are just falling in your, in your lap, it's hard to not be fully grateful for them when, because it's like still not something that can sustain you. Um, and that's, that's, a. I felt like I just needed language to put to that. And I, I assume others have had similar experiences where it's like, you know, something incredible that also exists alongside, you know, this lack in some other area that, that makes it hard to be fully appreciative of the good thing. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And I think it is a common experience. Um, and, and I'm, I was grateful for that language of, yeah, it, it is, you know, cake is, cake is fun. Cake is <laughs> wonderful to have, but cake isn't sustaining. No. You know, cake, cake doesn't keep, keep you going and, and cake doesn't um, reach that fundamental yeah. foundational hunger. Yeah. Um, and, and I think so many of us could, can speak to those times when we have had beautiful friendships or beautiful work experiences or beautiful achievements or accolades that have been great to have, but didn't speak to deeper longings in our, in our lives. And I think that was, again, I I just found that really, really helpful language. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think one of the other things that it, that it gave me and sort of probing at that language was, was realizing that I think kind of a theme sort of towards the later end of this book is is probing like what actually is that deeper hunger like i have the idea of what the fulfillment would be um but the longer sort of i experienced the lack of that it forced me to sort of probe even more deeply like what is the actual hunger behind that hunger and are there other ways that god actually is is meeting those needs um and so for me it was you know my own experience of singleness and childlessness and 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 experiencing loneliness within that um and realizing that you know that the deeper longing is this loneliness and this need to exist in community. And actually there are ways that God is fulfilling that need, um, even without filling the the thing that I desire. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a humbling and hard thing to grapple with, but also I think a gift to recognize that even behind that hunger, there was a deeper hunger. Um, and the what I would have considered bread was not necessarily the thing that was going to fulfill it, just like this cake didn't fulfill um, fulfill me either. Feels like there's such a beautiful invitation of the humanness and the the humanness we can come to God with. Yeah. That you know, not in that kind of way of like, I don't know. I think sometimes it's like, oh, God knows best, but but in a <laughs> deeper like um, that God is actually holding this this the way to. The oneness and the wholeness of the church. God is holding the wholeness yeah. and the oneness of ourselves and our yeah. beings, and that all of that is is part of what is being fed and what is being cared for. I was really struck um, at the beginning of chapter eight on freedom with this quote that you have from C. 
theologian um, Angel F. Mendez Montoya mm. about um, to know God is to taste God. And that feels connected to this to me in that a deep knowing is more than just a particular read on our own hunger being met, but mm -hmm. actually that deeper relationship, which can say, yeah, it's not all going in the way that I think that it should go. And yet I am being fed and I yeah. am being, being cared for. Um, so that, that just really jumped out at me of, of that, that knowing and the intimacy of it. Um, and I think it's, to, to me, it comes back to this individual and collective question again, as well of how can you, how can one be fed and be known to taste, to know God is to taste God. And that that is both about one's individual spiritual life, but also maybe the way that we're fed is by the, the provision of community and the, the um, ability to be not alone in, yeah. in that. Yeah. Yeah, man, I, I have like a lot of thoughts that are <clears throat> that are percolating, but also so much so much of it is <laughs> drawn from a dear friend of mine who's working on her own book on a on a related topic. And I don't feel like I can I can steal her ideas, but I just <laughs> want to because they're so brilliant. Um, but kind of at I'll I'll just say this that at like even down at like sort of a microbial level, like even our individual is never individual, and even our like knowledge mm. is never individual. That um that kind of are are the the ways that microbes are at work in our bodies and in our brains like our individuality is always inherently a collective thing of some form too that even knowledge in a cerebral sense and also this knowledge and sort of a physical like taste sense um it's a collective thing as you said because our you know our, our cooking and our sharing is always a collective act um but also like our actual knowledge and, and consumption is also this collective thing. And so those lines between individual and communal are always kind of muddled um, in a way that I think is incredibly beautiful and humbling. There's a lot of vulnerability in this book and I'm grateful for your willingness to be open on, on so many topics. Um, Full disclosure, I read this book in the context of um, having a teenage daughter mm -hmm. who is dealing with body issues and yeah. who is dealing with some, some disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And so often when we come to this conversation about food and faith so often food is food is the hero right mm -hmm. food is food is the bomb food is the healing and there are places where that's not the case where food is the the relationship to food is adversarial and the relationship to food is complicated and complex and i i just for for someone who has dedicated so much of their time and thinking to food and, and deeply and clearly has a very deep appreciation of food. How do you manage those thoughts and those feelings for when, when food is adversarial, when your relationship to food is adversarial and when 
And even when you think back on those times when your eating was more disordered than than you might hoped, how do you how do you reconcile sort of the that that deep love and and the deep pain that can come alongside those yeah. those same things? Yeah. So part of what I love about approaching food theologically and being able to draw on the gifts of Christian tradition is that we have a language that can hold those two together, um, that we can look to the story of Genesis 1 through 3 and see food as this gift that was given to us by God and was called good, and our bodies as a gift that were given to us by God and called good. Um, and also a language for the deep brokenness of creation. And we see from the very story of Genesis 3 that this consumption of food is integral to our experience of this brokenness of creation. And the story of the fall was this eating of forbidden fruit that the immediate sort of response was this like shame over the nakedness of their bodies, that the, the language of the curse is about, you know, the woman's relationship to childbirth and the, the labor and the soil and the sweating and, and producing food. Um, so this kind of relationship between us and our bodies and the ground and food is all woven together in this story of, of Genesis 3. Um, and so we have in Christian tradition this, this framework to hold on to both the deep goodness of creation in our bodies and a recognition of the deep brokenness that something is not as it's meant to be. Um, but we also have this narrative of God's healing and not only God's healing and redemption, but God's healing and redemption through the act of eating, that food and eating and our bodies once again are integral to this entire story. Um, and so starting there, I think it, it allows me to both kind of hold that goodness and beauty and celebration of food, and also this recognition of the deep brokenness of food. Um, and for me, and I think many of us in the West, our experience of that is largely through kind of disordered eating. Um, but we also have, you know, the, 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 diff, the, that relationship is complicated for those who don't have access to food or to sufficient food or those, you know, who, where food has been kind of the weapon in, in political battle battles, you know, looking even, even just at the role of wheat in the last Last, you know, year in this this war between Russia and Ukraine, that like that we that that food always comes into play in these complicated ways. How we experience this deep brokenness of the world. Um, but I think at sort of an individual level, when we're thinking about um, those of us who have complicated relationships to eating and and are prone to patterns of disordered eating, um, I think the the first step is having to learn to see food as a gift from God, and learning to see food as something in which we can delight. Um, and then from there, being able to move into a place of, so how do I see my body as a gift from God, this food as a gift from God, and then relate to food in such a way that I want to honor my body, honor creation, honor God, and what does that look like in the ways that I you know, eat, but also cook and garden and shop? Um, but I think it always has to come first out of this place of recognizing God has called our bodies good, God has called food good, and God wants us to delight in food. And that is a really hard place to arrive at. And it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and thank you for the reminder of just how robust our theology is. Yeah. And um, how robust our our you know scripture is. And and yeah, God can God can hold all yeah. of it. You know, yeah. and and sometimes we need we need the reminder that that 
you know, none of it surprises God and all of it can be held. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's the place to transition to hope. Mm-hmm. I hear hope in that. I hear hope in so many pieces of this conversation and of your writing. And um, as you know, when we talk about hope on this show, it's not the, you know, it's not the fluffy hope that <laughs> erases the hard pieces, but it's that deeper hope that you just articulated in that there is there is a, a way through and there is the affirmation and love and care um, even within these these difficult parts of being human and um, what's what's bringing you hope these mm. days and what what's keeping you moving on this um, path of exploration and of of faith um, yeah well right now I'm just I'm having a lot of fun kind of exploring breads of different um breads connected with different liturgical holidays of of different christian traditions around the world and it's just so delightful to sort of dig in and to see um the bread not just this kind of very simple bread of flour water salt and yeast but these much more elaborate breads with spices and dried fruits and various you know ways of shaping them that these breads have so many stories and and meanings and practices behind them um and that that Christians around the world and throughout history have used them in various ways. And that's just been such a delight to dig into these different stories, these various kinds of breads that I knew nothing about that have so much kind of rich history and tradition behind them. Um, And that is bringing me, I think, a lot of hope and just joy right now. Can you tell us about one of them before we go? That's too much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, since since we're in Lent, um, I, this week I have been testing a lot of recipes that are All Saints ones, so that feels not quite fitting with the season that we're in. But within <laughs> Lent, you know, I've been digging a lot in kind of the history of the pretzel. Um, so the pretzel is historically a Lenten treat um, because really? it was it was historically it was made without butter or eggs. Um, now, oftentimes pretzels do have butter, and that's what gives it a lot of flavor. Um, but it was a lean dough, meaning it was made without without any dairy products. Um, And so it was able to be eaten during Lent. Um, And it also, the shaping of a pretzel, the arms crossed are meant to look like prayer. Um, And so this was kind of a Lenten treat that was shared, this kind of, this reminder to pray while also eating something that did not have the foods that that people were supposed to fast from. Um, And so that's, that's kind of the one of the beautiful pieces of of pretzels. Um, But then there's also this version of the pretzel that made its way to this town that was kind of um, northern Russia, like right on the Russia-Finnish border. And it's it's kind of gone back and forth between being part of Russia and part of Finland. Um, but there's a version of it that has all of these spices incorporated into it. Um, and it still is made into the same shape of the um, of the arms praying, but it but it has so many other spices and flavors in it. And so um, it was yeah, it's just been really fun to explore kind of how this one treat has moved with people. And there's some story that there were Franciscans who arrived in this town and just kind of made their home there, which is how the pretzel wound up there. But, you know, there were all these spices that were a part of a part of um, their cuisine that they worked into the pretzel. And so it's this very unique sort of pretzel that most people don't know about. And um, yeah, so that's that's one of the things that I've been exploring. <laughs> that's really delightful. That's awesome. Pretzels. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> and now I want pretzels. <laughs> I am yes. so happy to say. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, it's Lent, so it's it's fitting right now. <laughs> it is liturgically appropriate to have yes, pretzels. To I have love pretzels. it. I, I didn't even know that. Um, Kendall, where can people connect with you and connect with your work? And um, obviously, um, get the book. Um, so I'll just go ahead and 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 plug all the things that you're doing because I know the book is is just one of the things the most visible right now of the things yeah. that you're doing. Yeah. So the best place to find is at www.edibletheology.com. Um, our website will link you to all of our various curriculum and our podcast kitchen meditations. Um, but also you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. So I always say the newsletter is the best way to to keep in touch with what I'm up to. I am sporadic at best on social media these days. Um, so I recommend signing up for that weekly newsletter to kind of keep up with the podcast and curriculum and all of those things. Um, but if you want to see when I am active on social media, you can find me on Instagram at KNV Slice and at Edible Theology Project um, and on Twitter at KV Slice. Excellent. And, and I'll just say that's one of those emails that like you want to open on a mm. week. So <laughs> I know we all get a lot of email, but. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Um, so, uh, again, the book is by bread alone, a baker's reflection on hunger, longing, and the goodness of God. Kendall, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for sharing, um, your, your wisdom and your heart in this book. And thank you for taking the time to, uh, dive a little bit deeper with us into all the things that brought this book to, brought this book to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a joy to be here with you guys. It's so good to see you. So good to be in conversation. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.